This is Rumble, and I am Michael Moore. On Thursday of this past week, the Attorney General of the state of Michigan, along with the FBI and the uh, U.S. District Attorneys in Michigan, arrested and charged 13 Michigan men who were part of or associated with various militias, charged them with planning to kidnap and potentially kill the governor of the state of Michigan, Gretchen Whitmer. Gretchen Whitmer has long been a foil for Donald Trump. In 2018, Gretchen Whitmer was elected governor of Michigan, along with, well, the whole top administration of the state was all Republican and was thrown out uh, of office. No Republicans uh, by the people of the state of Michigan decided to vote for all Democrats. So there was a Democratic lieutenant governor who was African-American, a Democratic attorney general who was one who was uh, open out lesbian, and a woman who was the secretary of state. So there are no white men running the state of Michigan. And that didn't sit well with a lot of white guys in Michigan. It didn't sit well with the president of the United States. And thus began uh, the tug of war. And when the coronavirus hit back in February and March, Trump immediately went after the uh, governor of Michigan, um, never referring to her by name, always that woman, the lady, who's the governor of Michigan, <laughs> the woman, the lady. And it became sort of a joke in Michigan, one that I think we were all very proud of. But then the militias in Michigan did not like her various shutdown orders to try and save people's lives. So they got out their guns and they went to the state capitol in Lansing in April. And we're talking assault weapons here and just brandished their guns on the lawn outside the Capitol. Then they took over the steps of the Capitol, and then they said, you know, why don't we just go in? And that's what they did. They went in while the legislature and the Senate was in session, and they went in to the gallery, the balcony where the public sits, and went in there and stood there lining the balcony with their guns, with their guns out, loaded guns. And the police, I think, were just too afraid to confront them in the chambers um, where there were also school kids sitting in the balcony who had been brought there for the day to watch their government in action, now scared to see these men in camouflage with their guns. And Trump, I think the next day, on April 17th, Trump tweeted in all caps, two words, Liberate Michigan, exclamation point, because he, he wanted to throw his support behind all these gun-carrying individuals threatening the governor, the state of Michigan, and the Senate, and the House of Representatives. Well, they were so frightened, they decided, they, the governor and the um, state legislature, decided to close down. They just shut it right down that day, and they didn't reopen for, I think, till the next week, frightened. And of course, when the bully is able to accomplish his objective 
in this case, show the gun and watch the people who believe in democracy shut the thing down out of fear. They accomplished that. And then Trump tweeted at them, congratulating them for, you know, forcing the governor to listen to them. Because that's how we do it here in the United States of America. We force you, when we want to force you to listen to us, we get out the guns. Now, at the time, I was disappointed that the legislature decided to shut down. Because what do we all know? Never give in to the bully. And yet, that's exactly what they did. But I and you did not know at the time that the state of Michigan and and the FBI were already on top of what some of the people in these militia groups were planning to do. They were all, they already had their undercover people at these meetings where they were plotting the kidnapping, what they were going to blow up, police they were going to kill, which was odd because at a number of these rallies, including the one in Lansing, in Michigan, a number of the county sheriffs showed up as demonstrators in uniform. It's very scary. Up where I live in, in uh, Grand Traverse County this past week, the, the county sheriff who works for the county and the county commissioners, I think we've got, we've got about seven, we have seven county commissioners. Four of them took their masks off in protest at this past week's meeting, violating the law. So on Thursday of this week, 13, 12 from Michigan, uh, some from towns and cities near where I live, um, some uh, down near Grand Rapids and Muskegon, and some near Lansing and Jackson were all arrested. And they had the tape on them of their plans, how they were surveilling her house, the governor's house. How they were surveilling the what they they call in the media her summer home. I believe that what they're talking about is that Michigan actually has what's called a summer residence for the governor. It's an official state building that sits on Mackinac Island at the top of the Lower Peninsula there, where Lake Michigan and Lake Huron meet. I'm not quite sure how they were surveilling that because there were first of all there were no cars allowed on, on Mackinac Island. You can only have horses and bicycles. I don't know what the big plan was there, boys, but uh, they in the in the criminal complaint, it says that they were going to kidnap her, uh, blow up a bridge nearby. Well, that's the Mackinac Bridge. That's the bridge that goes right past uh, Mackinac Island, connects the two peninsulas in Michigan. I guess throw in a boat and head over to Wisconsin where they were going to conduct a trial. They were going to put her on trial like ISIS does. And um, and then uh, meet out her her punishment um, once they find her guilty. The punishment implying possibly to execute her. In all my life, I have never heard of such a thing. A, an actual real plot where real explosives have been bought and real meetings and real training was taking place and real surveillance by the terrorists, the domestic terrorists, which is always really been our main uh, terrorism threat, um, whether it's whether it was the Confederate uh, traitors, you know, the ones that have statues to them uh, all through the South, um, whether it was them 100, uh, you know, 50, 170 years ago, 
or uh, whether it's been um, mostly, especially since Oklahoma City back in 90, 95, um, right-wingers acting violently to have their voices heard. White people are the scariest and the most dangerous people, according to the FBI, when it comes to domestic terrorism. Um, so, so they were arrested, and uh, and now we'll see what happens. the uh, uh, The very next day, on Friday, um, the governor of Michigan uh, decided to go up to where I live, uh, up in Traverse City, Michigan, and uh, have a little rally in support of uh, Dan O'Neill, who's a Democrat running for the State House of Representatives. They're very out there, very, very brave, very cool, especially because Northern Michigan is where a lot of this militia stuff got its start, where it exists. And if you are old enough to remember the Michigan militia uh, uh, training with um, Timothy McVeigh and Terry Nichols, who blew up the Oklahoma City Federal Building, killed 168 people. Um, they were both convicted. McVeigh was executed. Terry Nichols is serving a life prison sentence. I followed these uh, groups and these people for a long time as a, as a Michigander and as a person who had my own uh, newspaper in Michigan. It was called The Flint Voice, and then it became The Michigan Voice. I had my own radio show there called Radio Free Flint on the local rock station. And um, I've paid attention to the, to these uh, guys that look like me for many, many years. I think probably 1979 was the first time I, I had on the local guy who was the grand wizard of the Michigan Ku Klux Klan. Had him on my radio show. Wanted to see what the, what the plan was here. His name was Bob Miles. Actually, he actually grew up in um, Morningside Heights uh, by the George Washington Bridge in Manhattan. That's where he grew up. He still had a very thick New York accent when I uh, interviewed him. Um, and their plan was essentially General Motors was starting to lay off a lot of people in the late 70s. That's where all the layoffs began. And uh, they were recruiting. They were recruiting out-of-work auto workers in the hopes of preying upon their despair, their anger. And getting white uh, people to blame others for uh, the sad situation they were in. Uh, the other could be anything. Of course, it could be any. It could be black people that lived in Flint or Detroit or Pontiac, uh, or it could be Asian people uh, because uh, Japanese Japanese car business was doing so well, and people were buying Japanese cars all of a sudden, and not and not American cars. So there was a lot of anti-Asian uh, sentiment. Um, going on. I wrote a piece uh, at that time for the uh, Detroit Free Press um, Sunday Magazine, back when they used to have Sunday Magazines, back when they used to have <laughs> daily papers. We had two daily papers in Detroit seven days a week. Um, back in the day when I remember when I was younger, there was a morning paper and there was an evening paper. Anyway, so I wrote a story about um, uh, these two uh, out of work Chrysler uh, guys, white guys, uh, who chased down a, an Asian American by the name of Vincent Chin, chased him down the street, chased him out of a bar. He was at his, uh, I think, his bachelor party the night before he was going to get married. 
chased him down the street in Detroit, grabbed a baseball bat, crushed his skull, beat him to death right in the middle of the street. Um, and were arrested and were tried and received virtually, well, they didn't go to jail. I think they had to pay a fine. I don't remember now what it was, a few hundred dollars. And it's just an Asian guy. Come on, maybe a few thousand. That's it. That's it. So Michigan has a long history of racial problems, racism. But it also has a very long and proud history of doing the right thing. Um, Flint, Michigan was the first city in the country um, to have a black mayor, Floyd McCree. This is, even, this is before um, Stokes in uh, Cleveland. Uh, mayor Floyd McCree. It was back in 1966, maybe. Uh, first city in the country to pass an open housing ordinance to make it illegal to discriminate in the selling and renting of homes on the basis of race. That was also back in the, the mid-60s. So I grew up in that. You know, the UAW, my dad and all the family were all UAW members. And the UAW is one of the first unions to integrate uh, after World War II. Um, uh, Walter Ruther and the Ruther brothers made it uh, a signature campaign that uh, no longer could Ford and General Motors, Chrysler, make uh, black workers work down in the furnace and the foundry uh, and the awful, dirty jobs, uh, that the jobs, those jobs are to be shared amongst all races. And so people like my dad in the 1940s and 50s certainly worked side by side with black workers on the assembly line. It was really unheard of uh, back then. But the UAW, the union, pushed for that and made made that happen. So there are those, there are those good things, too, um, that have come out of Michigan. Uh, Detroit, long before Atlanta was considered, <laughs> sorry, Atlanta, the capital of black America, um, Motown. Uh, so much um, music and culture and everything that came from black Detroit that, that the whole country, the whole world benefited from. So as a very young person, I think when the, what were called the Detroit riots at the time, we call it the insurrection. Now when that took place in 1967, I remember people in the neighborhood I was living in white, white neighborhood, uh, packing up their cars to run. To, they, they thought the riots were going to spread to Flint and uh, about an hour north of Detroit. So they wanted to get the hell out of there, afraid that the, the black people, they didn't call them black people, by the way, my friends, if you get my drift, um, were coming, were coming for us. And I've told these stories before, I think, on the podcast, the night Martin Luther King was killed coming out of mass so it was the week leading up to Holy Week before Easter there and uh, coming out uh, of Mass on that Thursday night in April 1968. And one of the dads had gone out early to warm up the car and because, you, know, you know, April in Michigan, it's pretty cold. And uh, he turned the radio on and heard something and stood up on the floor, the floorboard, sort of the door of his car, 
put his head up above all the other cars to shout at us coming out of mass. Uh, uh, they've just killed King. Martin Luther King, they've killed him. And a cheer went up of people coming out of mass. Not the majority of the people. You don't need a majority to have a cheer sound loud, especially I'm an eighth grader at that point. You know, I'm just, I can't believe, why are people cheering? The man just died. That's where I grew up, you know, good and, the good and the bad of it. Um, so, as an adult, when I had my alternative newspaper there in Flint and I had my radio show, I started covering this issue. And as militias began to form, um, I uh, began to cover them and pay attention to them and what they were doing and how they were recruiting laid-off auto workers. The um, a group of filmmakers in New York had heard about it too, and they decided to come to Flint to make a documentary. And they'd gotten copies of my newspaper, I guess, and they came by and they asked if I would help them. Um, would they? Would I be willing to like call the the KKK guy and the other white supremacists because uh, I had <laughs> interviewed them before? To, to get them to give permission to this group of New Yorkers coming in to make a documentary. And so, yeah, I said, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll do that. And I, I knew one of the films that one of them had made, uh, really loved it, called The Atomic Cafe. And so I went out there and had lunch at the Grand Wizard's house, out of his farmhouse. And um, to be honest, I was worried what might have been in my soup. But nonetheless, I ate the soup. And uh, convince them to let these uh, documentary filmmakers come in. This is before I made a documentary. This is way back. This is like 1986, maybe 85. Um, and uh, and then I I said I asked if I could you know come and help them. I just wanted to learn how you make how do you make a film. I didn't know. You know I said I'll just carry equipment for you, whatever you need, get your coffee, and that's what I did for the four day shoot. Um, at the end of the first day. The director of the film asked me if I would be willing to ask the questions because they were getting very nervous and very afraid of this of the white supremacists who had all were gathering now in a, like a national convention in this farm field just outside of Flint. And so I said, "Sure, I'll, I'll do it." And so I end up I end up in the film as like the interrogator of the, of the white supremacists. And uh, it's called Blood in the Face. If you get a chance to see it, maybe I'll, I'll find a link and I'll put it on the podcast page here. Blood in the Face. It's my actual first appearance ever in any kind of documentary when I didn't even know anything about how to make a documentary. So I was in that. And then after my first film, and I was able to then uh, get a TV series on NBC uh, in the 90s, uh, right after Oklahoma City. And when we learned about the connection with the Michigan militia to that, I convinced the militia guys, different crowd than the earlier guys, uh, to let me come and spend a day with them and film it. And they agreed. And um, again, it helps when you kind of look like them. So I was very disturbed, of course, by Oklahoma City and the fact that Terry Nichols, along with McVeigh, Nichols, Nichols graduated the same year I graduated from high school. Uh, they're just outside of Flint. His high school, Lapeer High School, was the high, next high school over to the east of the high school I went to, uh, which was Davison High School. So our, our high schools like bordered each other. 
And uh, I didn't know him then, but uh, but just so you get an understanding of that, I I grew up in the culture of of what they grew up in, heard the same language, witnessed the same racism, bigotry, um, probably because of the parents I had and other reasons. I I went a different way, obviously, a whole different way than uh, than Terry Nichols. So Terry Nichols and Timothy McVeigh. They worked out uh, doing training exercises, trying building bombs, whatever, with the Michigan militia um, up in the thumb of Michigan just before the Oklahoma City bombing. Um, they came and arrested Nichols' brother, who was part of the bomb-making uh, practicing. And um, and so years later, when I made Bowling for Columbine, uh, I asked Nichols' brother, James Nichols, if I could come and interview him for Bowling for Columbine. And he said, yes. And, um, you know, because I w- Bowling for Columbine was, <laughs> wasn't just about guns. It was a film, as you know, if you've seen it, about uh, we are a violent people, we Americans. And uh, we like to shoot first and ask questions later <laughs> or learn later. What's a Muslim? You know, so... Um, so that was in the film, and maybe uh, if we can, well, I'll, put, I'll put a link to that too on the page here to that scene with the brother of the Oklahoma City bomber, and of course Timothy McVeigh, uh, who actually drove the Ryder truck with the with all the uh, fertilizer bomb stuff in it that blew up the building, the federal building. He was the son of a GM auto worker near Buffalo, uh, war hero for the first Iraq War. There's a footage of him getting a medal from General Schwarzkopf. Uh, apparently, he got what was that? What was called? He got the first kill in the Iraq War. He killed the first uh, Iraqi. Got a medal for it. Came back. Couldn't get a job. Medal didn't help. Couldn't get a job at General Motors. Couldn't get a job. Um, he tried to get a job as a toll taker on the on the on the bridge between uh, Buffalo and Canada. I believe it's called the Peace Bridge. Couldn't get a job there, so he had a lot of time in his hands. Started uh, hanging out with the militia types, the white supremacists, etc. Um, more and more angry. So I know these guys. I told you back in in April on the podcast when uh, when they all took their guns to the state capitol. I, I sort of jokingly said, I, "I know these guys. I went to high school with them." You know, somewhat facetiously, they're, they're, this crowd's a bit younger than mine. They're, these guys are mostly in their thirties. Um, sad. That makes it more sad. After all this, after all this work, after all this, you know, I've been on top of these guys and what they're up to for a long time. I've had them, as I've said, from my newspaper to my radio show. I've had them on my national TV shows, and I've put them in my films because I need people to pay attention to what is going on in this country. And they have been in hog heaven for four years, having Donald Trump in the White House, their leader, their white leader, uh, giving them all the support that they need. And they felt they felt empowered to meet and to train. And to plan the kidnapping of a woman. And um, 
just so you know that they knew that she, she was a woman in the in the criminal complaint. Um, they won't say these words on TV. I saw the, one of the broadcasters the other day. Oh, well, we can't say these words. Why not? Why don't you say them? Why don't you say what they called her? Because they're all female-related words. You're dealing with white guys who just can't take it anymore. They were ordered around by a black man in the White House for eight years. And now in Michigan, a four-year term by a woman. One of those, one of those angry women, <laughs> nasty women. And I, I loved it when she came out and did her press conference that day on Thursday. I don't know if we have, we have a picture of this or you can look it up or whatever. She came out in literally a Black Panther vest. Black Panther, the movie, not the political party. Uh, but it really looked like it looked like uh, that Black Panther sister had somehow made this this coat, this jacket that she wore in front of the TV cameras on Thursday looked very powerful, which to scared men is not good. But Trump, this is on you. This and the other the other things that you've done and you've said, you've told people to get ready. You've told them to get ready for whatever armed insurrection you want to see if you lose the election. You've told them to stand, stand back and stand ready. My Second Amendment people, as you've called them, they're ready. They've been planning this. And my friends, it's not just these 13 in Michigan, and it's not just Michigan. I mean, I'm not into scaring people because, listen, there's more of us than there are of them. We are not a nation of gun nuts. 78%, 78% of Americans do not own a gun. The vast majority of us do not participate in this culture, nor do we live our lives in such stupid fear that we need to arm ourselves in this way. But there are 390 million guns in this country. There's only 330 million people. But the Washington Post did an investigative piece a year or so ago. And they said the following, that while 78% do not own a gun in this country, and while there are many, many guns, 300 and they said at the time three, I think three sixty. Now the latest number is three ninety, three hundred ninety million. Um, that three percent, just three percent of the American population owns more than half of all the guns. You understand that? That means just three percent own about a hundred and ninety-five million guns. So, yes. We have to be ready, not ready with guns, but be ready and let them know that there are far, far, far more of us than there are of them. And it would be ridiculous. And if Trump is out there trying to rile them up, trying to get them to have some sort of armed insurrection, that is an act of treason. And somebody in some official capacity representing the people of the United States of America will need to take action immediately upon any, any sign of Trump. 
trying to create bloodshed in the streets. And we must have our voices heard. It's not just Michigan. But I know what this is. All of us, all of us need to be on guard and demand that those in charge deal, deal with those who threaten any American's life. I've got one more thing to say about Trump and what is going on here in his final weeks. And I'll do that right after I um, give some acknowledgement here to our underwriter today for this episode. And that underwriter is Gabby, G-A-B-I. So you've heard me talk about Gabby before. Uh, They're here to help you save money on your homeowners or your auto insurance. Their goal is no more overpaying, (laughs) no more being ripped off by these insurance companies. Okay, that's a good motto. And that is a good mission. So when you've had, as you know, you've had the same car insurance probably for a while or the same homeowner's insurance, you get kind of just used to it. You don't check it anymore. And you just, you know, they send you the new premium this year and you go, oh, shit, it went up. Okay, well, you know, things go up. And you don't kind of, you know, and it's sometimes it's so incremental, it doesn't really grab you. Until maybe three, four years down the line, you go, wait a minute, didn't we used to pay that and now we're paying this? It's one of the oldest tricks in the book. Well, listen, my underwriter for today's episode, Gabby, they want you to stop overpaying for car insurance and homeowners insurance. Uh, Gabby is about trying to get a lower rate for the exact same coverage you already have. So all you have to do is just link your current insurance account uh, to them on their app here. I'm going to give you the information here. And I've already had friends. I told you before the super of my apartment building, he did this. They're all saving all this money. And I'm like, wow. Okay, good. I'm glad to hear this works. They will within minutes, Gabby will within minutes, give you the exact same coverage that you currently have. And in many cases for a much lower rate, uh, the average Gabby customer saves about $800 a year on their insurance once they've gone to the free app. So uh, just take a few minutes here and and stop paying more than you should for your insurance. Go to Gabby.com. That's G-A-B-I, Gabby.com slash rumble. That's it. So Gabby.com slash rumble. That's G-A-B-I.com slash rumble. And that's it. Within minutes, you're going to find out just how much you've been overpaying and how much you can save. And you are going to be happy uh, that people that love this show, Gabby, uh, decided to get behind it and allow my voice to reach as many people as possible. And I'm grateful to them for that and uh, grateful to all of you who listen. All right. Back to the the final thing I just want to get into here um, about Trump. Trump, the waning, the waning weeks of Donald J. Trump.
Yes, that was the sound of Donald Trump drowning. Donald Trump, my friends, is now a drowning man. This week, he called for the arrest of Joe Biden. The arrest. And the arrest of President Obama. And Hillary Clinton. Arrest them. Lock them up. Biden should be taken off the ballot. These are the barking orders of any drowning dictator, gasping for his last breath. In a fit of mad lunacy, Trump lashed out at his own attorney general, William Barr, for not arresting Biden. He lashed out at his secretary of state, Mike Pompeo, for not helping to indict Hillary for, for guess, your guess, you know what it is, right? 30,000 emails. This is Trump, post-hospital. He's, he's out there blaming his FBI director for saying to Congress that actually there is no history of election fraud in this country. I mean, other than the fraud that Trump has been creating with our United States Postal Service. Trump has been so crazed this past week, there is now talk in Congress of triggering the 25th Amendment, which allows the vice president and the cabinet to take power away from an incapacitated president, which, my friends, is what we have right now. The ejection, I mean the election, is just three weeks away from this Tuesday. We are barely, my friends, we are barely going to get there, and you know it. Trump, like all drowning men, is seized by a monumental panic. He knows it's over. He knows there is nothing he can hang on to to live, to survive, because he is a goner. And the rats, the rats are jumping from his gold-plated sinking ship. We will not save them either. Thoughts and prayers. GOP sycophants, in order to attain my Eagle Scout medal when I was in Boy Scouts, the final test that I had to pass was to fight off a drowning man trying to drown me in the middle of the Flint Central High School pool. It was called the Life-Saving Merit Badge, the last one to get before Eagle Scout. Now, I learned very quickly that the adrenaline of a drowning person is massive and that he or she is instantly empowered with an overwhelming strength when they realize they're going to die. So when I jumped into the deep end of that pool, the the drowning muscular adult, the swim instructor, came at me with such a violent vengeance, grabbing my neck and pushing my head down under the water as he tried to climb on top of my head so that he wouldn't drown. Now, if you've ever been in a situation like this, when your head's underwater and not and not because you want it underwater, well, you know how terrifying that must be. You also know that your strength cannot match the strength of the drowning man. Your brain realizes that it is you, in fact, who is going to die. 
but I quickly remembered my training and used the water to pull out of his grip. Then I got behind him. I wrapped my arm, my elbow right around his neck with me behind him so he couldn't, he couldn't lurch at me. And I was able to neutralize him and pull him to the side of the pool. Well, that, my friends, is our job between now and November 3rd. We have to stop the drowning man, not from drowning, but from killing us. We must absolutely also know that in his delirious state, he, the drowning Trump, can still drown the rest of us. He can still pull it off. Don't believe for one single day, no matter how good the polls look, no matter whatever, no matter how how he comes back, and he does come back, as you know, don't buy it for a second or we'll all get pulled under. Remember, though, the difference here from my Eagle Scout training and dealing with Donald Trump in 2020 The difference here is that for the sake of our democracy, for the sake of our country, for the sake of the hundreds of thousands who are going to die under him, we have to make sure, in fact, that he does drown, not in the water, but drown in a sea of ballots, a tsunami of ballots, so many ballots that he can't come up for air, so he can't come up. And call out his militias, call out his armed supporters for the uprising that he wants to see happen. No, that means we have to crush him and crush him hard. We can't win by a few votes. We have to win by a tsunami of votes. And we can do that. We can do that if we do what we need to do between now and November 3rd. We're going to talk about that on the podcast here in the coming days and weeks. Something you can do each day. You need to get registered first. So don't forget if you live in Maine or Minnesota or Kansas or Virginia, uh, there's a couple more states, but you need to register. Tuesday's your last day to register online. So look here on my site, on my podcast site, You're going to go to IWillVote.com. You just click on there and then boom, they'll take you right to uh, the page where you just type in your name and address and they'll look up. They'll make sure you're registered to vote because if you're not, then you can fix it. And, And then if you are not registered to vote or you know people that are, just have them. It'll take literally, it'll take you less than a minute or so to register to vote. And some of you are living in these key swing states. There's a big Senate race in Kansas, of course, Minnesota and Maine, Virginia. There's a few other states where Tuesday's the deadline, Idaho, West Virginia, Louisiana. But get registered, my friends. Iwillvote.com. I'll be back in a couple of days. I want to thank our executive producer, Basil Hamden, our editor and sound engineer, Nick Quaz, all of you for listening. Uh, send me an email um, at mike at michaelmore.com if you have any comments about Rumble or leave me a voicemail. Um, if there's a, a link right here on this site uh, and you get one minute and I love to listen to the voicemails. So um, um, send me your thoughts or questions you have, ideas for Rumble. 
uh, open uh, to all of it. Thank you for all of that, and and thank you for being part of this this effort that we're all we're all in this together, right? Um, we're going to we're going to end the madness. That much I know, uh, and there's even more and uh, better work and more fun work uh, to do in the coming months, the coming year. Thank you, everyone. This is Michael Moore, and this is Rumble. <laughs>